We're going to jump right in. I invite you to follow along on your Bible app or your Pew Bible. It's page 46 of the New Testament. That's toward the back of the book because they start renumbering. We're going to look at our gospel passage from Mark this morning, and we're in a sermon series that's walking through Mark. This is Jesus. And what we've seen as we've gone through Mark these past, these four Sundays now, is that one of the things that marks Jesus' ministry is as a wandering teacher. He's moving from town to town throughout the countryside, and he teaches people and he heals them, and because he's a healer, people come out because they want to hear what he has to say. And as he does this, he meets with a lot of opposition because he's rocking the boat. He's rocking the political boat. He's rocking the religious boat. And one of the main opponents that he develops along the way are the Pharisees, this devout, pious group of Jewish religious establishment figures who are determined to trip him up. So they go to his public teaching sessions, kind of like folks who like follow a candidate for election around, you know, heckling them wherever they go. And the Pharisees try and trip him up with questions. And that's what they do in this passage today. So it says the Pharisees came to test Jesus, and they do so with this question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus, as he often does, answers a question with a question. He won't take the bait. He turns it back on them, and he says, well, what did Moses command you? Now, the Pharisees are asking a legal question of Jesus because the observance of the law was at the center of Jewish spiritual life. Because the law was given to the Jews by God through Moses, the famous leader who had led them out of slavery in Egypt over a thousand years before Jesus. Moses, who was believed to be the author of the first five books of the Jewish Bible. And as far as the Jewish law went, there was no earthly authority that was higher than Moses. He's the author of the Constitution, so to speak. So when Jesus turns it around, this is saying, well, you know, let's go to the source. What did Moses command you? And they say... Well, Moses let a man divorce his wife, and that's technically true. There's one law about divorce in the Jewish Bible, Deuteronomy 24. But interestingly, that law is not about how to get divorced. Deuteronomy 24 says that if a man divorces his wife because, quote, she has found no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, then if she then remarries and then divorces again, or her second husband dies, her first husband can't remarry her. That's what Deuteronomy 24 is about. And the reason for this law was to protect wives. When a woman married, her family gave a dowry, money, to her husband. And if they divorced, the husband kept the dowry. Now, if she remarried, another dowry to the second husband. But if then she divorces or is widowed, she keeps the dowry. So the point of Deuteronomy 24, the point of this law, is to prohibit a husband from divorcing his wife and then remarrying her to get more money out of the arrangement. But by Jesus' day, the rabbis, the teachers of the law, had taken this law and used it as the basis for saying when divorce is okay. So the law says, if a husband has divorced his wife, this conditional phrase, because she's found no favor in his eyes, because he's found some indecency in her, And they say, oh, okay, well, that must be when it's okay for a husband to divorce his wife, if she's found no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her. Like, that's not the point of the law, but that's what they've extrapolated from it. 
Now, at the time of Jesus, there were three prevailing rabbinic interpretations of this law. One was the school of the rabbi Shammai, and the way he read it was if he's found indecency with her, so that meant that you, he could, a man could divorce his wife if, if she was unfaithful, if she committed adultery. And then there was the school of the rabbi Hillel who said if he's found any indecency in her, and he said, well, so he can divorce his wife if she burns his dinner. And then there was Rabbi Akiba who said, no, she, if husband can divorce his wife if she's found no favor in his eyes, and he said, so a husband can divorce his wife if he finds somebody prettier. The Pharisees want to see where Jesus falls within this spectrum of teaching that represented the prevailing options at the time. And it's worth noting that all of these are just different degrees of how subject a woman ought to be to her husband's desire. That's what these views represent. And here's the thing. The Pharisees wanted to know because they were believers in God's law. They took it so seriously that they wanted to know exactly what it said, exactly how they were supposed to live out every part of their lives. But the problem with the Pharisees that Jesus shows here is that you can observe the letter of the law and still not have your heart in the right place. Because knowing the law can be an exercise in self-justification. Like, what can I get away with? What can I pull off? I mentioned in a sermon a while back that we're doing some work on our house. I mentioned the infamous floorboards. I've heard a lot about those floorboards. We had to get a building permit for this work. Uh, the city inspectors would come in to make sure that things were up to code, that we're following all the regulations, but that's all the city inspectors care about, making sure that the work is done safely and correctly. As long as we're sticking to code, we could do whatever we want to do with our house. As long as we play by the rules, the rest is fair game. So when the inspector's coming in, they want to know, you know, like, how thick is the drywall? They're not coming in to examine whether or not the space is going to be beautiful. The inspectors don't care whether it's going to be pleasing to the eye. The inspectors don't care whether this is going to be a warm and nurturing home for children, because the building code can't regulate any of that. And what Jesus is saying here is, you Pharisees, you're like somebody who's building to code, but you've lost sight of the purpose. You're building this house, but it's not a home, because you're just looking for what you can get away with, with divorce. Like, what's permitted? Like, what can I do without getting in trouble with the big man upstairs? And lest we smile and nod and say, oh yeah, those Pharisees are awful. I mean, don't Christians do versions of this too? Isn't there the temptation to treat the Bible and Jesus like it's a set of rules, a checklist for getting into heaven, like if I do this and I don't do that, I won't get in trouble? Isn't there a conservative sexual ethic within the church that says the only criterion for sex is whether or not you're married? And if you're not married, it's all bad, and if you are married, anything goes. And isn't there a liberal version of this ethic that says the only thing that matters is whether there's consent. Like, if everybody's okay with it, then anything goes. But just because you're married doesn't make it loving. Just because everybody consents doesn't make it loving, right? These are just ways to avoid getting into trouble. The desire to be justified, to say, I'm right. I know that this is okay and this is out of bounds. This is pernicious. It's pervasive. The Pharisees are more familiar than we might like. Anyway, so Jesus says, yeah, that's not it right there. He says, look, Moses gave you the right of divorce because of your hard-heartedness. Like, because you all have hard hearts, Jesus says to the Pharisees, marriages fail. And so Moses gave you the possibility of divorce because sometimes that's going to be the lesser evil. 
Like God gave you that law because, through Moses because he knew you were going to screw up marriage. But this kind of messing around, oh, I can leave my wife, she burned my dinner. Moses says so. You're missing, Jesus says, what's really happening in marriage. Maybe you've built your house to code, but it's a terrible home. Because, Jesus says, God made humankind as man and woman. And that's why man leaves his parental home and is united with his wife, and the two become one flesh. So they, they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no one separate, Jesus says. Now, when Jesus says what God has brought together, he doesn't mean God made you guys find each other on the app. He's saying that when two people come together as a married couple, God unites them in a spiritual, metaphysical way. Jesus is saying something happens in marriage that's written into creation itself. And you Pharisees, you've lost the plot. You're so focused on how you can get divorced without breaking God's law that you've lost sight altogether that divorce breaks flesh, this one flesh made by God. And if that weren't intense enough, then he's talking to his disciples and he says, what this means actually is that the oneness of married flesh, a unity made by God, actually can't be broken by human divorce law. So he says to his disciples, that means that remarriage after divorce is adultery. The Gospel of Matthew tells the same story, just a little differently. Matthew records that Jesus says divorce and remarriage is allowed when someone has cheated. But also in that version, the disciples hear this and what he's saying, and they freak out. They're like, are you serious? If that's true, if that's what's happening in marriage, you'd be better not to get married at all. Like, whoa, man, those stakes are way too high. And one thing we don't talk enough about as a church is the inherent value, the worthiness of the single life as a way of living, as a calling, as a vocation. It was a state held in high esteem by the early church, but that's a separate sermon. Anyway, back to the disciples. I can understand their reaction because, to be honest, this vision of marriage that Jesus is putting forward in this passage is way more intense, way more intense than any of us tend to think about marriage. It's so intense that I wonder if we can even bring ourselves to really hear what Jesus is saying here to take him at face value rather than pretend he's saying it something else or, or just to turn the page and get to the good part where he rises from the dead? I talked with a lot of divorced people while I was preparing this sermon. I know a lot of divorced people. Some remarried, some not. Because I wanted to know how this passage landed on them. And one person said it felt kind of like despair. Because with most things, you might do something wrong, you commit this or that sin, you can repent, you can ask forgiveness, but to this person, it sounded like what Jesus is saying here is that if you've been divorced, you've broken that unity of married flesh, and if you've remarried, you've committed adultery, and this person says there doesn't seem to be any way out of that. There's no escape. How do you move forward? What, what do you do with that? And what makes this such a brutally hard passage is there's not one of us that it leaves untouched. Like if I asked everybody here to stand up who had been divorced or had experienced divorce in their families or friendships, there wouldn't be a single person left seated. So if we take Jesus seriously here, that's a heavy judgment that falls on all of us, feeling the weight of his words directed at ourselves or at someone we love. And let's be real. Let's, let's be honest for a second. Maybe this feels terribly unfair. 
because some of us will have had truly terrible experiences with divorce, but others of us, if we're going to be honest, will have experiences of divorce where it's hard not to see the positive side of it. In our culture, marriage is a love match, a joining of legal equals. It's not primarily about children and continuity, family of continuity as it was in Jesus' day. And so if what you expect from marriage, as virtually all of us do, is personal flourishing and love, then it's undeniable that a marriage without those things that ends in divorce and opens its way to one that has those things will not be entirely a bad thing or maybe even a good thing. And in the case of an abusive relationship, divorce can be a great thing, even a life-saving thing. So what do you do? What do we do with this? With Jesus here clear as day saying what he says, no loopholes in sight. When I was preparing the sermon and talking with people that had been divorced, one thing that stood out to me was this, that, that almost all of them talked about divorce like a kind of death. It was like they knew the truth of Jesus' words in their bones, that divorce was the death of that one flesh that God had made out of two. And divorce, even when they felt like it was the right thing, the necessary thing, they felt like it was a ripping, a breaking of flesh. I'm not saying everybody feels that way. Maybe that's not your experience at all. But the pe- that was the experience of the people I talked to. And if you're divorced or if you love somebody who's divorced, and I love a lot of people who are divorced, but especially if you're divorced, I want you to hear me really clearly here. I am not standing here to pile on shame or condemnation to what I know is probably one of the hardest things you've ever gone through. I'm not here to judge, and I am not here to condemn. Because listen, Jesus also said that whoever looks at someone with lust has already committed adultery with them in their heart. And that means that there is not a single marriage in this room There is not a single marriage in this city that has not been violated by adultery, whether of body or heart. None of us has a clean conscience. And though I've never been divorced, I can also say as a married person, I can say this with absolute certainty, that any married person who claims not to understand how divorce happens, who thinks their marriage could never break down, they could never cheat, it could never happen to them, is lying to themselves. Marriage, this life of one flesh, it's so good, but it's also so, so hard. So what do we do? Stuck here between the rock of Jesus' words and the hard place of our lived experience in a culture and a church that has made its peace with divorce. Aren't we all trapped by this? Yeah, we are. We are not okay. We're not okay. But here's what I want us to remember. Listen to this. so important. Remember how the Pharisees were so determined to figure out how they could avoid trouble? Like build to code, be okay? What Jesus is telling us here, what he's telling us everywhere, is that okay just isn't an option for us. Okay isn't available to us. Jesus isn't giving us a set of regulations where if you tick the right boxes. No sex before marriage. Be a nice person. Don't lie or swear or chew or go with girls who do. It doesn't say if you do all those things, you can be okay. Because okay is not an option for us, not just for the divorced. They just know it better and more intimately than the rest of us. The world's broken. The world is broken, and we can't fix it. 
and we're broken. We're broken, and we can't fix us. And that's so hard to accept because we all desperately want things to be basically all right, and we want someone to just tell us the rules for life so that if we can follow those rules, if we can build to code, then everything will be okay, but it's not going to be okay. Listen, everyone in this room is in a different spot spiritually. And if you're seeking or thinking about Jesus, this passage is a bit of a pull-the-curtain-back moment. We're preaching a sermon series called This is Jesus, but the Jesus we meet in the Gospels kind of messes with the picture that a lot of people have because he's not this super sweet guy. He's not this dispenser of timeless moral truths, this teacher of valuable life lessons. He blasts into the world like lightning hitting a piece of Kleenex. This apocalyptic prophet bearing the good news that everything you know about everything is wrong. The flesh broken by divorce, that's the tip of the iceberg. The way we view money, status, sex, power, fame, it's all broken. And the world is broken because the human heart is broken because it doesn't know God, Jesus says. But Jesus come preaching good news. This is good news. And why is it good news? Why is it good news that we are all broken? Because God is not broken. And God has not forgotten. And God is good. And God is faithful. And God will make a broken world new. But the old world, the old self, the old heart, it has to die first. You can't just fix it up a little bit. It has to die. And God will raise it to new life. And you can know that's true, Jesus says, because it's going to happen to me. I'm going to die the death of the oppressed and God will raise me to life and I will set you free. This is Jesus. This is what he's offering. And here's how it all relates to our passage today. Because the thing is that when we cut through all the garbage, all the pretending, and if you're at church on a Sunday morning, there is some part of you somewhere that wants to get beyond pretending. To ask what is real, what is true. And when you get past all the lives we tell ourselves just to get through the day, what each of us wants is to love and be loved. That's it. Underneath it all, that's it. Love and be loved. But we're so bad at it. We're just so bad at it. Because Giving and receiving love is really hard. That's why Moses gave us divorce, Jesus says. Because sometimes we just can't handle it, this love business. That's why God gave us a law that lets you break the one flesh he made out of two. Not because the breaking is good, but because sometimes, very, very rarely, it's less bad. And listen, into all this mess walks Jesus. God taking on flesh in a world of broken flesh, in a world of flesh breakers. And he lets his flesh be broken by these broken lovers. And you know what Scripture says happens then? It says the way Christ loved his church, it was like a marriage. In Adam and Eve, God made two into one, but they broke that, and we still break that. But in Jesus Christ... God made two into one, God and humanity in the person of Jesus. And he takes our humanity and makes it one with himself. 
And in a few minutes, we're going to live out this healing that he gives us because he gave us his broken flesh as bread to consume. And our broken flesh consumes that. He takes our broken flesh and his broken flesh and he makes a new flesh out of the two. I believe in the resurrection of the body, we say. Listen, we are talking about mysteries here. This is not life application stuff. This is not ethics. This is not how to vote. This is not the best way to recycle. There is nothing to do with this except to worship. Because in the end, that's what it means to receive the kingdom of God like a little child, as our passage ends. Like a child receiving a blessing. He's not looking to get the answers right, to tick the boxes, to comply with the building code. Like a child who just receives what's given because they can't. They can't take it for themselves. That's us. That's us. He took the children in his arms. He placed his hands on them and he blessed them. And he will take your broken, dying flesh because all flesh is broken and dying to his broken, resurrected flesh which will die no more. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. You and Christ are one flesh. And what God has joined together, no one will ever separate.